welcome to Hunter Gathers, the podcast of Hunter Thompson Stories. I'm your host, Katie Clancy, and today we're interviewing and speaking with Margaret Harrell. Margaret Harrell was Hunter Thompson's trusted copy editor for his first book, Hell's Angels, published by Random House in 1967. During that time, she was the assistant editor to Jim Silverman at Random House and worked on the books of people famous then or later, including John Irving, Richard Farina, Chet Huntley, and Supreme Court First Amendment lawyer Cy Rembar. A writer herself, she has memorialized her relationship with Hunter and a couple of other male writers in the first two of her four-volume memoir, entitled Keep This Quiet. She is currently working in collaboration with Ron Whitehead on an, on, on an upcoming illustrated book entitled Hunter Thompson's Hell's Angels, Writers and Editors, Romance and Trouble, which will reprint and contextualize the letters between Harold and Thompson. Welcome, Margaret. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you very much, Katie. So I'd like to give the listeners a bit of background about your place as a copy editor at Random House during the mid-1960s. You were in your mid-20s, right out of graduate school, hired into a prestigious yet clearly male-dominated industry. You found a job where you worked to help bring out the voice of other aspiring writers, and yet you were a writer yourself. You had to take great care to understand the writer's deeper message and convey it into the work. That's a lot to say. Who were you at that time, and what was it like being in that role? It was an absolutely wonderful adventure. I felt so lucky the whole time. Being in New York City, that electric city, being young, working with these people, and working with words, which I loved. But let me go back to sort of set it up as part of your question. Um, We were like the first generation. Our parents were, as women, what they were expected to be and and themselves expected was homemakers, secretaries, or teachers. And if you had some kind of adventurous spirit, um, you typically, an artist, for instance, would choose a whole different lifestyle. But it was all a new role, and there was not a landscape, or there weren't role models Uh, when I was coming along. But I definitely wanted to be a writer from a young age. I definitely wanted to get away from the small town North Carolina, and I loved being in New York City. So for me, it was the perfect job. Mm -hmm. And so when you came into contact with writers like Hunter Thompson, you were confronted with this energy that maybe you had never, you know, seen before as far as being bold in your in, in in as a writer and saying you know what what you need to say. My question is before we get into that is what was it like when you read the Hell's Angels manuscript? What was your first impression when that book landed on your desk? What stood out about it? Okay, well for ins- for me that's more than one question because if you go back and talk about Hunter's energy and all, I loved his energy. He had presence and I felt right at home with it. It was like a natural thing for me. It was so it was thrilling and exciting and I just I I didn't in any way take distance from it. But this was to me the the author energy. As a writer, he created uh, a, a 
type, gonzo writing and gonzo journalism. And he, as a human being, had a strong gonzo side. But the gonzo energy was all through the village. I lived in Greenwich Village in the 60s. Um, The energy itself, so I'm trying to distinguish between what he created, which was gonzo journalism, and what what he embodied, which was gonzo persona. But you found that energy. I, re- I gravitated to it. It was alive. It was sparkling in the 60s. So um, when I received his manuscript, um, I went upstairs. I always would go upstairs. And Jim Silverman or whoever the editor was, maybe they would come down to my desk uh, downstairs or I would go up to theirs. And in his case, it was this really big manuscript of orange gold piles of paper. We had no computers. And so it was the original manuscript sitting there with his marks on it. And it was colorful. I mean, so your first impression, mine, would be, here's a colorful person with with these very catchy, eye-catching color of the pages, and then his marks throughout them. And Jim then would, in this case, Jim Silverman, he would introduce me to what this book was, what kind of book it was, and he would send me away, and and so he did, and I would get my impressions and come back and tell him I would make marks in pencil, always in pencil I did, very respectful of the writer. And I would show him the manuscript and tell him what I had thought, and he and I always agreed we didn't have to worry about that. And so we had the same idea of any kind of um, changes that needed. And so in this, in, in every case, he would then uh, say, okay, go away, fix it up, and I would go down to my desk and I would carry out what we had planned, um, making little brackets in pencil if something needed to be tightened or transposed as a suggestion or a stimulation for the author, never a commandment or an order. Um, But in this case, so he sent me away, and if there was a lot of work, we would go home and do it at home. And we had tons of overtime, but that's another story. (laughs) We had Mm -hmm. tons and tons because we would work at home. But in this case, when I finished and I went back up there and showed it to him and it was all ready, he did not call Hunter in to sit beside me, and we would go over it for two days, three days, as with other writers. In this case... He he was not calling Hunter to New York, so that that's the next stage. Yeah, and tell us a little bit about that next stage and when and how did Hunter incorporate himself into the editing process? Well, you see, this was ideal. This became a Gonzo setting. I guess anything would have. But so I'm over in New York, and he do, he doesn't know me. He's got no idea who I am, how old I am, what I look like. He can only get his impressions. And Hunter will not work with someone or even interact with them until he explores them. He taps into their energy. He tests them. He tries to see what they're like when they're afraid. And it's not just like high jinks and high spirits. It was his curiosity, his imagination, and his he wanted to make true connections with people, authentic ones. So if, if I was forced, as I was, to, to send this off in the mail, and I'm a stranger, and nobody prepared him, I mean, 
long distance phone calls were expensive and we we didn't have you know cell phones we didn't have internet we didn't have computers so everything it, we had to go through the mail unless it was um you got on a plane or um you used a telephone as i said that was very very expensive um it went by the minute and it went by the distance and it was crossing two continents long distance um so he responded in his absolutely typical manner and here was where i met someone different from what i had met before because he wasn't afraid to jump in and challenge me and try to sit, find out try to try, try to precipitate a crisis and so that's what he did to start with that was typical of him hmm precipitate a crisis absolutely Tell That's me more about that. Anzo in person, but that—that that, if you are a student of human nature, as he was, you don't want to be—you don't want to um, stay on the surface. You don't want to um, be superficial. And so, if he was going to work with me, he had to find out what the parameters were, who I was, uh, what his power was, how, how, what was expected of him, and how far he could push the boundaries. So he immediately tried to, to test all that. Where, um, see if I can sort of like explain it. Um, you know, some people go step by step, and they feel around, and they tentatively and timidly um, try to make inroads, but he didn't. He wanted immediately, he didn't want to play a game. He wanted immediately to figure out what was going on here. Who was he, who was he, who was on the other end of the, um, of the letter? Mm-hmm. And so that meant that we had to create, for the first time ever, a working, um, a paradigm where, where we, Related to each other, but we had a way to 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 keep him happy and um, work and and yet get things done. And so Jim Silverman came in and he said, uh, "Do this by phone and by letter." He said, "Keep him happy. Do whatever it takes." And so therefore, our Hunter was happy. <laughs> we were honoring him. We were actually at his service, at his beck and call. He made me. Um, do all kinds of errands, running around New York for him, everything you can imagine. And we got along just just wonderfully. But it was not pretending he had to find out what was re- what the reality was of the situation. And so being Hunter, that's what he tested. And that's a part of the gonzo, you know. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. It's a great way that you explain it of, you know, not tiptoeing around, really being clear, no. direct, trying to figure it out. And obviously you really you responded well. Otherwise the relationship probably would have crumbled if you didn't have a backbone. But see, I had been a writer and for, since I was a child. And I was female and I was Southern. And it, all those things added to a sort of sensitivity I had. And I was very introverted. So all that made me have, you know, hypersensitive... I could imagine, I could empathize what I would feel like, you know? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I translated that to to um, agreeing with him. <laughs> and But that then defined my role as being someone there to help him, to do what he, what would make his um, career, 
set a, setting the very best framework possible, and would it would help him when we had a question. He could answer it. He could do put his own words there. He could do anything he wanted. But usually, if it was a question, it meant that not just Jim and me, but a, a reader reading the book would have a question. And so that's a wonderful thing that a reader does, an editor or a beta reader. They show you where there are points where you didn't communicate quite what you meant to. And then a writer becomes incredibly grateful when the writer sees, oh, gee, look what the, you know she pointed out to me that I hadn't thought of. And then they can go and take it and do any fix they want. But the idea is that you're resonating back and forth and that you're you're on the same page, on the same. You're trying for the same goal. You want to help um, bring out the book to make it better. Because in those days, publishers wanted they cared about the book very much. They didn't just run the book manuscript over to the marketing as the primary important thing to to consider. They cared about um, Jim fought for this book. He he fought for it because uh, different. Different um, um, publishing houses really discovered Hunter by the article he wrote for The Nation about the Hell's Angels. So he didn't go out. Ironically, he had tried to get um, all these his novels published without any luck whatsoever, sending them off, you know, like you do to agents. Mm-hmm. No luck whatsoever. But uh, here he didn't try. He wrote a good story, and every these all these publishers came to him. And so Jim fought for the book. He wanted it, and um, based on a chapter, based on a, a an article, not even the length of a chapter. So he mm-hmm. hadn't written the book when they signed it on. And so even though then he managed to turn it into a whole book, and quickly, you know, um, within a year. Um, then it goes through refinements by having feedback. So that's what I was there for, and Jim also. Yeah, it sounds like you really cared about the trust and the relationship, and that really carried through not only the process, but you know, moving on into the rest of your relationship, which I will let listeners know that if you want more in-depth, detailed um, description about Margaret and Hunter's relationship, you should definitely pick up Keep This Quiet, Volumes 1 and 2. There's a lot of rich, um, just beautiful writing in there. So I just want to make a plug. Um, but while yeah, we're but still Thank in, you. Oh, but uh-huh. they should put, you have to type in the exclamation point because quiet oh. is a funny key word, but Keep This Quiet, exclamation point. Thank and, you so much. Yeah, exclamation point. And um Keep This Quiet comes from an envelope he sent me. So it's a very meaningful title to me. And so then mm-hmm. I turn my my life story, which is four volumes, and it veers away into other kinds of I get older and more things happen. But the first two volumes, it, it, it applies to the whole book. And he gave that title to me, Keep This Quiet, through an envelope that had that written on the outside, a highly decorated Greenwich Village envelope. You know, we had a, a cartoon character and tiptoeing around, keep this quiet. So, exclamation point. For the last few minutes of what we have on the podcast, I'm curious about how Hunter, as 
the man, his presence, and or his writing really spoke to you as a, a writer or a woman? How did it empower you? What did it What did it light up in you that you will that you remember today? Um, it's just uh, it is really hard to 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 say. It was not anecdotes which people describe. It was him, his presence. He was there. It didn't matter the written word. I mean, it was because he he embodied it all. Like for instance, if you talked to him, he read had read everything. Um, you could say a quote. I could coming out of Columbia University. I could say a quote, and he probably knew the quote, and he could tell me a quote. Um, he w- it was all alive, and he wasn't. It wasn't like reflecting back, remember that, and so on, so much as he w- he was so in the moment, and that's why he that's why he wanted to probe the situation he was in. That's what the whole Gonzo thing was about. Rather than, you know, he wasn't taking many drugs when I first knew him, when he was just 29 years old. Um, so I was, he was a living example of Gonzo and authenticity. And um, the artist in him, the writer in him, the journalist, was expressing this, um, this big life presence that was in the the source of it was the background. But when you talk to him in person, he was a good listener. He was very funny. He had dimples. Um, he had a reserved side where he would be quiet or speak softly, and then he would jump up and um, say something um, to shift. If it, like you can hear it in interviews, um, it, he he was just. So present and alive is basically, and for me, I needed to learn to be direct like that. It was very hard coming out of a southern, small southern town female in that particular time. You didn't so much dare um, speak your truth, and Mm -hmm. he did speak his truth, and he didn't care if people responded. He didn't care if they uh, didn't understand or anything like that. He didn't care if he had to backtrack the next minute. So that it's a very I think of it more as a normally a masculine quality till females discover it in themselves. Their their inner masculine. He had that in spades, and I wanted to learn how to be to have that quality. Mm, and it's so beautiful what you talk about how you know, the persona that really caught fire through, you know, once he became famous was this like very reckless, crazy, drug addled. But in truth, all of that came from someone who was well-read, worked his tail off, was very um, prepared to do the work that he did. It wasn't like he was just shooting from the hip. And you probably saw that in the professional realm. Absolutely. He did his research. He did his homework. He did. He traveled. You know, he explored. Remember, he was all through South America, on, on doing research, trying desperately to get people to accept his stories. That's why I said, mm-hmm. suddenly, after all that hard work, he gets discovered. One little story, and people come after him. But, um, yeah, you know, all the work that took to get to that article was, you know, probably momentous. Absolutely. Yeah, that's so, and it's really great what you talk about as far as the spirit of Gonzo being this presence, being this 
bold quality of speak your truth, don't be afraid, you know, um, I think that we all can take from that no matter where we are, um, even though we're in very different times now. It's like be here now, you know, mm-hmm. be here now. Um, and for the, the, the big thing for me was not to weigh your words, just step aside and let them come through. Don't weigh your words. Don't be afraid somebody might be offended. Um, don't be thinking of, don't put yourself down, you know, um, trust yourself, um, things like Mm -hmm. that. They are, that's, now somebody else could take something else. Yeah, it was was like a creative, intuitive spark that I think only true creatives can, can find no matter what realm they're in. Um, so thank you for sharing that. And we could talk for so much longer, Margaret. I would love to do more, um, but we'll end this here. Um, is there anything else that you want to share, though, before we sign off? No, not at all, except to have a website, um, margaretherald.com, in case anyone wants to check it out. There is some Hunter Thompson material there. Margaret Wait, how do you spell your name so that people know the website? Uh, M-A-R-G-A-R-E-T-H-A-R-R-E-L-L dot com. Great. So everyone listening, please go to margaretherald.com. Check out the memoirs. Keep this quiet exclamation point, And please tune in again for our next podcast. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Margaret. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a great day. You. Bye. Bye. Well, the southern gentleman hit the highway and gave us stories we could share of crooked schemes and shattered dreams of people everywhere. Road of whiskey screams and motel rooms where no one seemed to care. Road of deep, dark, secret places made us feel that we were